Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I was recently unnerved by a clip that I saw on YouTube, which showed the highest skydive on record. Uh, The Austrian skydiver Felix Baumgartner flew approximately 24 miles into the stratosphere and thought it would be a good idea to jump. He did a five-minute free fall to the earth. Uh, I was dizzied just by watching it, Uh, dizzied by the fall as well as the potential risk of the fall. Uh, but I, it gave me a, a striking visual image as I was considering the doctrine of the incarnation or the enfleshment of Yahweh, what it means that God would intermingle with us to the degree that he would not only enter a narrative, but enter human experience and a human body. Uh, so John in his gospel presents Christ as a diver of sorts, as someone who would jump from the highest peak into the deepest ravine. And that's what I want to speak about tonight, the highest peak to the deepest ravine, and then ask the question, why? (laughs) Why would this occur? Uh, Well, first, let's deal with the highest peak, because John begins his gospel in this very memorable way to show Jesus' own superiority. John's gospel does not begin with a birth narrative. There are no mangers in John's gospel, no shepherds, no angels, no magi. Uh, Mary is not uh, spoken of as being um, impregnated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Joseph isn't really in the story very much. Um, it, It begins outside of that framework and seems to be disinterested in those details. Maybe John knew that they were covered elsewhere. We don't know. Uh, But what's fascinating about John's origin story regarding Jesus of Nazareth is that it predates all those figures. In fact, it predates creation. Mirroring the language from Genesis chapter 1, and most of us know that language, uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, John says, in the beginning was the word. In other words, John is beginning before Genesis. So if you are putting the biblical books in order, or the verses in order, or the chapters in order, the Bible shouldn't begin with Genesis 1. It should begin with John 1. In the beginning was the word, because the word predated canyons and moons and antelopes and Antarctica and uh, political upheaval and human problems and, uh, and all of it. John begins with that language, in the beginning was the word. And it was this word that he identifies with God that was the fountainhead of all creation, that everything that eventually came in Genesis 1 came because of this reality that was at the Father's side, the one known as the Word or the light. And so we call this, in technical terms, mega-high Christology. 
That's not a technical term. Mega high Christology. It means that John wants us to see something about the identity of Jesus that gives us the loftiest possible perspective on the man. He is, in fact, saying that Jesus Christ is not just a man, not just an impressive figure, not somebody that causes us to say, wow, but instead is superior to all of that. Mega high Christology. He is more lofty than creation, more lofty than anything that you've ever seen in your life that has taken your breath away. And more than that, he's loftier than even the central heroes of Judaism. In this prologue, two heroes are mentioned, Moses and John. Moses was the famous lawyer, right? The law came through Moses. That's important. But something superior comes through Jesus Christ, namely grace and truth. And also John. John the Baptist, Jesus' own cousin, was the sort of last gasp of the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. He represented in many ways the, the prophetic, urgent message to Israel that they would repent. And yet Jesus is superior to John because the text says that John was not the light. He came to bear witness to the light. So he's superior to creation, superior to Israel's heroic figures, loftier still. Uh, In theological terms, by the way, this is called supersessionism. It means that the New Testament conceptions are always connected to the old, but they make sense of the old and are, in fact, superior to the old. Jesus Christ is a novum, does something different, was predicted by the old, but fulfills it in a glorious way. Um, There was this fascinating story uh, of an unlikely man who discovered that Jesus was from the highest peak. Uh, and this occurred many years ago, about 30, actually more than 30 years ago, at a Bible study that took place in Washington, D.C., and it was attended by many uh, high-level political power brokers, and one of them was Arthur Burns, a name that some of you will know, who was the head of the Federal Reserve and advisor to four different presidents. He was frequently in attendance at this Bible study. What was fascinating was that uh, Burns was a faithful Jew but was not a Christian, At the end of the Bible study, to the surprise of everyone and the embarrassment of most people in the group, somebody who was new to the group that didn't know Burns' religious tradition asked him to close in prayer. Burns agreed to close in prayer, and he did so with these words that were written down. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would bring Jews to know Jesus Christ. I pray that you would bring Muslims to know to know Jesus Christ. Finally, Lord, I pray that you would bring Christians to know Jesus Christ. If we can't take it from this Christian clergyman, could we at least take it from a Jewish person who thought that Jesus was really worth considering? And he, he wanted us to know that Jesus comes from the highest place. By the way, what I'm asking you to believe tonight is not easy. I know that. It's not easy because if we admit that Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, the word through whom all things were made, if we say yes to that, it will have a million implications that are deeply destabilizing. Uh, It will make us understand God in a new way. It will make us realize that all of the people that claim to speak for God are not all on equal footing and they're not all right about everything. 
that there is only one person who embodied the divine fully, and that's Jesus. And therefore, every other religious leader uh, outside of that outside of that direction that Jesus Christ gives and embodies is either partially wrong or even demonic because they don't represent the fullness of God that was present in Jesus Christ. And that's quite something to claim. But we have to think about God in that way, that he is the definitive expression of who God is. It also has implications regarding how we think about materiality and stuff. You know, there are all sorts of religions that are very negative, and not just religions, but irreligions, that have a lot of negative things to say about the world and people. And we ought not follow that line of thinking. Because God did not believe that it was gross to become human. God invested himself in the very things that he made, like skin cells and blood vessels and human temperaments, invested himself to the degree that he would join himself, not just to a creation, but a creation under a curse. Saw fit to do that. And so therefore, when you look at yourself in the mirror tonight, you have to realize that Christ came, God came in human form for a human being just like you. Because you and the totality of your humanity are worth something. So we have to think differently about materiality. And lastly, we have to think differently about allegiance. Because if he's the definitive one and embodies everything that we need to know about God, well, then he's worth our allegiance. And that life has to be altered and contoured around his conceptions and his ideas because they have superiority. And there's all these yappy voices that want your obedience, by the way. Lots of little totalitarians out there. There's only one Lord, though, that doesn't use power to abuse, who would never do that to you. And it's the one who wants our allegiance, the one who is God of God, light of light, very God from very God. So this is the man from the highest peak. And yet what does he do? He jumps from the rocket, so to speak, and dives down into the deepest ravine. And this is the great controversy in this passage. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, many people from various religious traditions hate this idea because they like the idea of God being where God is and us being where we are and that there's like this ocean between us, that God is so transcendent that God is not terribly invested in the human experience. Uh, There's an ocean between the two categories and it is almost a blasphemy to blend them. Uh, That's why, by the way, Jesus Christ was put to death. You may remember at the end of his life, we have the scene in the courtroom where they accuse him of blasphemy because, to quote John's gospel, he made himself equal to God. Those categories of humanity slash creation and divinity don't blend. But in Jesus Christ, they do. We believe that those two things come together. The infinite intertwines with temporality, with neurology, with physicality. Um, But more than that, the incarnation involves not just a blending, but a deep ache. The incarnation is a rough doctrine. Because whilst God was incarnate here, he wasn't treated very well. First of all, we understand the ache of limitation, right? As flesh, 
God incarnate leaves unlimited and perfect union with things ultimate and vulnerably arrives into a world of mosquitoes and allergies and you know bone fractures and sick fathers and mental illness and all of it. So he, he leaves that which is steady, that which has equilibrium, that which has eternal blessedness, and allies himself to a place that doesn't have those things. And so that creates ache, the ache of his now limitation. That's why uh, in Philippians, Paul will write that in the incarnation, Christ empties himself of certain things. While he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped or clutched, but made himself nothing and became a servant even to the point of death. And so he, he is a creature, is a creature in one place at one time, a creature who grows up, who learns things, and who is vexed by the same vexations that vex all of us. That was his experience. And also he experienced the ache of dismissal because John's gospel tells us that he would come to his own, but his own would receive him not. It is no coincidence that when Jesus is born, he is placed upon lumber. And when he dies, he is placed upon lumber. Right from the start, doomed. Doomed to this dismal failure from an earthly perspective. Uh, He was born under the law right? To redeem those who are under the law. But he did come to his own, and we said, we don't want what you're not only selling, we don't want what you're giving away. That was the human disposition toward his arrival. So my friend uh, Bishop Fitzsimmons Allison uh, tells this story of his best friend and adopted brother, Pat McKenzie. Uh, When Pat McKenzie was in high school, his parents divorced, his father skipped town, and his mother just one day, never came home and abandoned Pat, who was a very young man at the time, in a three-story house by himself. Well, Fitz's parents took Pat in. He eventually started to call them mom and dad. Well, Pat grew into this incredible person. Fitz always said that, I'm a little bit jealous of how good he looked because he got all the girls. Um, He grew into this star athlete and eventually became a college president in South Carolina. And... Uh, and he discovered in his 50s, and many people do, by the way, when they're abandoned by their parents or key figures in their life after a, a given time of healing, there's this burning desire to meet the people that hurt you or reconnect in some way or build a bridge, you know, something. Well, in his mid-50s, he had that urge, and he found out through these distant relatives where his mother lived. His dad had died, but his mother was alive. So he drove hundreds of miles Uh, to see her. And he was very fidgety and terribly nervous, but he he pulled up to the house and like sat in front of the house for two hours, you know, didn't want to get out of his car, but eventually his courage was stirred to the degree that he did. And he went to the door and he knocked. And then he knocked again and there there was no answer. So he tried walking to the back of the house just to see if anybody was home. And there she was, on a rocking chair, on the back porch, reading. Uh, And he approached her and said, you won't remember my face. And she said, of course I know your face. And she said, but let me stop you before you say anything. I have to tell you I'm sorry. I made a terrible mistake years ago. 
But the only way I can deal with this is to never be reminded again. And she turned and walked away. Walked into the house and left him standing there. He was not invited in. He was not embraced. Instead, he he got in his car and he put on the windshield wipers, but it wasn't raining. It's just his eyes, you know, were like baptized in tears and and he couldn't seem to stop crying until he got home. In a sense, it's a metaphor, a story that reminds us of our own disposition to the best things in life. We often say no. Because we're so caught up in ourselves, you know. And he came to his own, and his own received him not. But he still came. He still showed up. He knew it all, you know. It's the burden of omniscience. He knew what he was getting into. Didn't stop him from loving you. Um, So that's the highest peak. And he dives into the deepest ravine. And so I think it's important to ask the question, why? If this is all true, and I'm fully convinced that it is, why would God do this? Why the deep dive? I think there are three reasons John gives us, and these will be very brief. First, it's a window. Jesus unveils God. This is the weird Christian paradox, and it's this, it goes this way. We can't actually know God without a human being. You can't know the ineffable unless the ineffable makes himself tangible, relatable, where you can like hear his words and engage with him and hug him and So he makes God knowable. Because John says no one has ever seen God. So there's a mystery there. But God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so we wouldn't actually know God without Jesus. We wouldn't know God without a human being. So he gives us a window. But he also gives us warmth. Warmth. The word grace is only used in John's gospel four times. And they're all in the prologue. All of them. From him we have received grace upon grace. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, etc. You know, without Jesus, we might deduce that there's an unmoved mover. We might deduce that the universe has sort of a mysticalist quality or an energy or a vibe that we're digging. Maybe. 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 But we wouldn't know that God is feverish in his positive disposition toward us without Jesus. You really wouldn't know that God loves you without Jesus. Because the evidence is so 50-50. So I went to the, um, the Episcopal Cathedral. No, what is it? It's the Episcopal Cathedral of George Washington in Valley Forge. And it's really beautiful. But we got the second tier tour guide. And he was just making stuff up. And it was fun. So we took this very fancy tour, this archive, because it's really something to behold. The front window has the life of Jesus Christ. The back window, which is equally parallel in size, structure, and color, is the life of George Washington. Because, after all, if Jesus Christ had an equal, I'm just kidding. But I mean, so he's pointing this out. And he, and he had this great, I think he was from Pittsburgh, because he had kind of an accent. And he said, you'll notice, everyone, that there are black and white squares on the ground. And that's because all of us have real good days and real bad days. And I'm like, I, I don't think that's the reason, but whatever. I don't, maybe he knew something I didn't know. 
But here's the point. If you try to deduce God's godness toward you or his disposition toward you, if God has a disposition toward you, and you look only at your own experience, you will deduce that God is sort of mezzo-mezzo. He's like them squares on the floor of the cathedral. But Jesus offers us a different vision. Jesus says it's not like that. It isn't half and half. Because all of God's vows in Christ Jesus are yes to you. They're not maybe. They're not sort of. It's definitive. It's yes to you. Grace upon grace. Heavenly warmth without any sort of qualification. A window, warmth. And why did God do this? To offer us welcome to envelop us into the family, to give us a loving proximity to God. Here it is in John chapter 1, all talking about the distinctive relationship between father and son, between uh, the one who sent the word, right, and their connection. And what does this text say about us? That he gave us the right, who believed in his name, to be made children of God. That we're brought in too. We're never sons and daughters of God in the way that Jesus is. He has a distinct ontological connection with the Father. But we are adopted into that family, rebonded to the highest source. And so that's something about the highest peak, the deepest ravine, and God's inner drive, if I can put it that way, his desire that you would have a window into who he is, the warmth of his nature, and the welcome that his wide open arms uh, can provide. So I'm going to close with this story. It's a memorable example of the impact of the incarnation in a rather, let's just say, I'm trying to be charitable, lackluster television holiday special um, entitled Mr. Kruger's Christmas. Have any of you seen it? No, this is so, I'm so glad and relieved that you haven't. It's not worth seeing. Um, but, But the last three minutes are absolutely gorgeous. So just fast forward it until that point. Um, it was one of Jimmy Stewart's, you know, Jimmy Stewart, his last appearances on television. He plays this older man named Willie Krueger, who's this widowed janitor who lives in a basement of a high rise. And he finds himself entirely alone on Christmas Eve talking to his cats. And, you know, he's totally abandoned by everyone. He, you know, listens to records all day long and but he's, he's really just a sad man with, without any connections. Well, he's despairing, and he lays his head down, and he starts to dream, and he dreams himself into the nativity. He dreams himself into the nativity, and so he's walking in the cave in Bethlehem, and there are all these people around, these shepherds, and then he sees the family, and he sees uh, the, the baby, wrapped in the swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And it's very clear that no one can see that he's there except the baby who stares at him. And he stares at the baby. And then there's this monologue in which he introduces himself to Jesus Christ, the infant. I'm going to read it to you because it's beautiful. He says, I'm uh, Willie Kruger, and I'm the custodian over at the Beck Apartments, but I think you probably know that. I guess nobody can see me except you. I didn't bring a gift, but I guess that's not important right now. 
I don't know what to say, except thank you, I guess. Thank you for everything that you've done for me. I know it's been a lot. But there was that one time, and I'll never forget it, when you were so close to me, like you were in the room, right when I lost my wife. I've always been able to count on you when I felt dark inside. And you were right there, right there, even when I didn't feel good about myself. I knew that you cared for me, and sometimes that made me feel better. Like the time I got mad at Mabel Huntington because she broke her pipes on purpose just to get attention so she wouldn't be alone on Christmas. I fixed them, but boy, did I holler at her. I hollered real loud. But then I got to thinking that you love Mabel just as much as you love me. I think I talked to you about that at the time. When I started to visit her and we became friends and I was there every week until she died. I hope you know how much I do love you. You're my closest, finest friend. And I guess that means that I can start to hold my head up a little higher no matter where I go. Well, Stuart filmed this scene in a single take, and these were his words in reflection after it was produced. I only had one of those scenes in me. Being in this scene was the greatest honor of my whole life. Well, the incarnation, friends, is a deep plunge. It's a deep plunge. So I'm asking you not to make light of it and don't spurn it today. Because this is God, and God God offers you his whole self. And I think it's only rightful that we return the compliment and say to him, then you can have me too. Amen. They took your life. They could not take your breath.